This is Get Closer, a podcast by the Geneva International Motor Show. In this episode, we get closer to Will Buxton. Motorsport journalist, commentator, and presenter, Will Buxton has had the rare luxury of turning his life's great passion into a career for the better part of the last 20 years, becoming a familiar face in the world of motorsports as he offers insightful analysis, interviews, and captivating storytelling to millions of fans around the globe. His work on the widely acclaimed Netflix documentary series, Drive to Survive, further solidified his reputation as a key voice in the Formula One community. And as he continues his journey in his books and on camera, Will Buxton remains committed to providing unparalleled coverage and delivering the stories that fuel the passion of racing enthusiasts worldwide. Will Buxton. This is really unique because we obviously went to college together. So it's a completely different setup to my other guests because I didn't go to college with Sebastian Buemi, for example. I mean, you say obviously, but it's not obvious to anybody but us. And it's so bizarre that we've ended up in this mad world together. Yeah, it really is. I know you as 17-year-old Will and onwards, but I don't know who little Will was. And I'm quite intrigued to find out who you were as as a dinky. Well, I've always been dinky. You know that from when I was 17. That's true. Yeah, okay, let me rephrase. As a young Will, As a slightly young. more dinky. Oh, goodness, how far back do you want to go? Young Will was born in Portsmouth in England on the south coast in 1981. Where do I take it from there? I grew up in in Cheltenham and then we moved to Worcestershire, which was kind of where my my real conscious memories of my life sort of began. We lived on the side of the Malvern Hills, which is beautiful. And I changed school about age, let's say about seven or eight, and went to the King's School in Worcester. And I became a chorister at the cathedral there. So I was sort of performing, singing every day in this tremendously grand, beautiful, ancient place of worship, which was which was really amazing. So sort of a few years later, changed school again. My dad's job changed and we, we moved down to the south of England and progressed kind of through school and college to where we went uh, and then on to university in the north of England. But those, those early years were spent as a kind of growing fan of this thing, which I would later grow to do as as a career and it was it was born out of a I think my first well my real first experience of motor racing came at the Prescott Hill Climb when I was about three or four years old and I actually found a little book that my father had kept and we were going through all his his things after he died and in there there was a page in it and I'd written down on it I must have been a bit older than three because the handwriting was okay it said you know this weekend I went with mummy and daddy to Prescott and I saw racing cars. And that was the first time I'd seen a racing car and it just kind of got into my system. I, I just loved it. The the smell and the noise and just the raw adrenaline rush of seeing people drive cars so insanely fast. Um, and it kind of stuck with me ever since. And, you know, growing up in the, in the UK, Formula One was everywhere. It was on your Sunday afternoon television. And so I'd sit down with my dad and we'd watch Grand Prix and I, and I fell in love with it. And 
age 13, my big hero was Ayrton Senna. And when he died, my dad bought me my first copy of Autosport. And that was it. That's when I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to write about Formula One. I wanted to write about this thing, which at the time was very niche that my friends didn't like and didn't watch. But I did. And I, I wanted to I wanted to write about it and let other sort of kids that like this niche thing know that it was kind of cool to like it. So that was, yeah, that was, my childhood was great. I loved my childhood. It was such fun, you know, living on the side of the Malvern Hills and running around the place with my sister. My mum would just sort of, you know, summer holidays go, right, you go and play on the hills and and come back at four o'clock or when, when the sun sets, just, you know, make your way home. It was, it was mad. That's really nice. And answers the question to whether there were any sort of key moments that shaped your career now, I guess. And there obviously were in significant moments with your family. But it's interesting to hear that those experiences didn't make you want to become a, a driver or Formula One driver, which you hear so often you would hear boys have been, you know, boys and girls, obviously, but, you know, you are a boy talking about their experience, of, you know, with their dad or whatever, going to watch racing and wanting to become a racing driver. But for you, it was quite clearly writing was a passion from a really young age and journalism was a passion from a young age. Yeah, I was I was one of those kids that talked a lot and I I always loved I guess I I liked the sort of expressive art. I was good at painting. I was a bit of a drama kid every now and then, not massively, but I, you know, I'd usually sort of audition for the school plays and and quite enjoy that. And I loved writing. I loved English, you know, whether it was English literature or English language, I was I just really enjoyed writing. And and that was true actually for all my school subjects. I loved history because I got to write and anytime I had to write an essay, I'd really get into it. And I, I, I loved it. I was never good with numbers. And, and I was terrible at sport. I was, I, I was awful at sport. So any, any notion that I was going to be a sporty type person, I think was demolished from a very young age. You know, I was, I was small. I was the little kid in the year. And I went to schools that played a lot of rugby. So I just got beaten up. My mum once came to watch me play rugby and said she'd never seen anybody run so fast on a rugby pitch in the opposite direction to the ball. And that was, that was just, that was my, that was me in sport. I like cross country running, but that was it. I, I never had any delusions that I that I could race. You know, for two 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 very good reasons. One, kind of opportunity and cost, which were way out of our leagues as a family, uh, and talent. That that was the other thing I was I was lacking. You know, I had a had a good go at, at you know little local tracks, and I wasn't slow, but I wasn't mega. Cadbury actually, Cadbury chocolate bars. Uh, I think it must have been around 92, 93, had a, a promotion with Nigel Mansell where if you saved like 20 chocolate bar wrappers, you got a free 15 minutes at a local go-kart track. And that was my first ever experience of, of driving a kart. And I really enjoyed it. And I wasn't that bad, but no, I just, I, you know, that kind of an opportunity just never, never felt like a, a realistic aim. And you know what they say, those who can do and those who can't talk about it, so... Here we are. And there was quite a pivotal time. In fact, it might even have, have been at college, was it, when you wrote a dissertation? It was It was at university. So, really? so yeah, so after we left college, I went to Leeds University to study politics. And I, I decided to do politics because my cousin was actually a writer at The Times in London. And so I just asked him for advice on, you know, what should I, what should I study if I want to be a journalist? And back when, when you and I were at, at college, like media studies was seen as a bit of a joke degree. It wasn't taken as seriously as it is now. Neither were journalism degrees because they just assumed you'd graduate as an identical journalist to everyone else. So he said, you know, take a, a subject that you love, whether it's history or politics or law, learn to research, 
learn to form your arguments, learn to write and find your voice. So I did, I did that. And I, and I wrote, I, I studied politics at university and then it comes around to your last year, right? You've got to sit down and write 12,000 words on something that interests you in the world of politics. And I'm like, I want to write about European fiscal policy or fishing or any anything, nothing within it interested me. So I said, I'll write about the politics of Formula One. I'll write about what I know because it's a very political sport. So I tried to write this dissertation, which argued that we could learn something new about democratic process by looking at Formula One, which was a nation state without territorial boundaries that had a president and a constitution. And it had its own kind of trade union blocks and um it was this very perverse form of democracy and um yeah i wrote it and uh, very nearly flunked my entire degree because of it and i found it a few years ago and it's dreadful it's absolutely awful i was going to ask i wonder how differently it would be written now especially based on what you know as well <laughs> But but the problem with it was it was I, I got so into it that I spent the vast majority of this supposedly politics dissertation just talking about the sport because I was having to explain the context of why everything mattered. So I ended up having to try and do a potted history of Formula One whilst also drawing out why this was relevant from a political studies uh, angle. And I think I failed on both counts. Uh, it's really terrible. But... You know, I sent it to David Tremaine at Formula One magazine, who I'd met a few years earlier at the Autosport show and had just said, look, I want to be an F1 journalist. Can you help me? And we'd stayed in touch and he'd put me in touch with Joe Saywood, who was, you know, at the time and still is, you know, preeminent journalist on the on the, the history of the politics of the sport. And we'd all stayed in touch and David, bless him, took sort of one look at this dissertation and said, yeah, cool. I mean, look, I love, the, love the, uh, the commitment. Do you want to come in and do a couple of weeks work experience once we'd finished uh, at uni? Actually, I was working in Seven's Wine Bar in Farnham. Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, I remember bits of it, you know, five minutes of each <laughs> night I was there probably. <laughs> so, yeah. So I was working there behind the bar and I got a call from David and it said, we want you to come in and do two weeks helping us to put together the Formula One annual when that was still a thing. So I went and I did two weeks work experience for him there. And on the last day, I turned up with a pillow and a sleeping bag. And he said, what's that for? I said, I'm not leaving. And he said, it's okay. We aren't going to ask you to. Do you want to stay on as our, our staff writer? I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And that's where oh, it all started. Oh, my God. So, yeah, because I was going to say, you know, at what point did you realize this could actually be a career? And I guess that really was such a defining moment. And I'm really glad it was because I that's it's all I ever wanted to do and it's all I'd set myself up to do. You know, I, I had a politics degree and a, and a desire to be a Formula One journalist and no idea how it was going to happen. I just got really lucky that, you know, David took a chance on me and and called me in and then liked what he saw. And, and I started working at, at Formula One magazine for about a year and four months until just before the start of the 2004 F1 season started, they shut the magazine down. And uh, there was this 23-year-old kid who'd had his dream job for a year and a few months. And uh, and that was it. It was, it was over. No magazine, no job, no nothing. And everything that I'd learned over those first months of what it meant to be a journalist, what it took, some of the network that I'd started to make, you know, being involved in putting magazines together and doing interviews with Sterling Moss and Tony Brooks and Jody Schechter and 
you know, all these amazing, amazing racing drivers getting in Damon Hill and getting to meet all these, all these people. And then suddenly it was like, that's it. You've had it. And it's, it's done. It's, it's, it's over. It was really hard actually that early part, but those years at the magazine were so key in showing me that I could do it, that I sort of had a place there, that I had a voice that people seemed to like what I wrote. And it really fired in me that, okay, I've lost this, but I'm not going to lose the dream and I'm not going to let it go. I'm going to, I'm going to hang on. I'm going to do everything I can to stay in it. There was no element of this is the end of what looked like it could be quite a good career, but uh, now what do I do? So how, how did you manage that? You know me, mate. I, you know, I can't knock me down too easily. I'm, I'm ever the optimist. I went home and I just sort of said to my parents, you know, what the hell do I do? And they said, well, what do you need to do? And I phoned up Richard Woods, who was head of the FIA at the time, head of the FIA's media division. And I said, Richard, you know, what what do I need to do? And he just said, get yourself any publisher, anyone who will publish your work, any any outlet that you can, and I'll I'll give you a media pass for the year. And I went to Metro newspaper in London, which was, and still is, a you know, free newspaper that people pick up on the on the uh, on the underground, and uh, they were taking everything from agency. And I said I'd li- I'd like to be a Formula One reporter. They said, "Well, we can't pay you much." I said, it "Doesn't matter. I just need to have an outlet. I need to have somebody who will vouch for me, and I can put them against my name, and I can get a pass, and I'll write whatever you want." And it, the money wasn't great; it was peanuts, but it got me my pass, and it got me out there. And my parents didn't have a, a huge amount of money, but they they lent me what they had, which was pretty much their savings, and I bought a a little camper van, little Volkswagen camper van thing. And I drove to all the races. I drove to all the European races. Because back then, we're talking about a 16 race calendar and 12 of them were in Europe. So I only had to miss, you know, Australia, Canada, Japan, Brazil, and I could do the rest of the season. So I set off. Imola was my first race and I was pretty much in Europe then for the next six months, just driving around from race to race. Loved it. It was great fun. I spent, you know, every weekend in the campsites with the fans and then going into work and working in the paddock. It was so influential on everything I've done since because the questions that I got asked when I got back to the to the campsite each night and the conversations I'd have would then really frame what I went to do the next day. And I'd come back and they'd say, oh, you know, did you, did you find out about, you know, is Michael Schumacher doing this or whatever? And I'd be like, oh, well, so I spoke to Michael and actually it's this. And, and I started to learn more and more about what people really wanted to know and what they really found interesting as a fan base. And those kind of fireside chats every night in the campsite are still really what, what I try to do now that I'm broadcasting, because I really wanted to just take everybody into the paddock with me, but I couldn't. So my job was to bring the experience that I'd had in the day back into the campsite and relate it back to everybody. Um, yeah, kind of around the fire with a few beers. It's so, int- I, c- I can really relate, you know, obviously being a presenter in motorsport land as well. I can, I really resonate with that learning of how do you not just be a presenter and asking questions or whatever you've decided are are interesting to you, but how do you be a voice of the fans? Like yeah. what did they actually want to know? And like you say, it's by hearing snippets of other people's conversations, isn't it? What are other people interested in that you might not have even thought about? Yeah, totally. That's 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 it. Because you can, and particularly with motorsport, it's such a weird little bubble, and you get very caught up into what seem like very big, very important things in the bubble, which outside 
do not matter at all and really no one cares about. So if you can get out of that into a place where, you know, actually everyone's talking about what they really do care about, well, that influences everything that you do afterwards. So yeah, that was a, a very, very important time for me in my in my career. And and it's really sort of shaped everything that's that's come since. At that stage, did you think that you would be anything other than a print journalist? No, and I, I never wanted to be. Television wasn't r- realistic. You know, we grew up with Murray Walker on the television and you didn't grow up thinking, I want to be Murray Walker because that's what Murray did. You know, you, no one was going to replace Murray Walker. And also, how the hell do you even start? Where does that begin? No, I, just, I loved writing. And really, when I realized that I could write about this thing that I loved, and then someone was going to pay me to go to motor races. I just wanted to keep doing that because that year in the camper van, I thought, this is it, right? I'll get to the end of this year. I'll never work in Formula One again. So I'm just going to have fun. And I had a I had a whale of a time. I probably didn't take it as seriously as I should have done. In fact, I definitely didn't take it as seriously as I should have done. And I think that has possibly held me back or certainly did do in the earlier years. And I think there might have been certain sections within the paddock of the more sort of traditional parts of the media who didn't look favorably on me because I was quite, well, very young, very loud and clearly having a whale of a time. And I you know, probably wasn't taking it as seriously as I should have done. But it's just because I thought, I thought it was over. I thought it would definitely be over at the season's end. No one was going to give me a job. So screw it. I'm just going to have fun. And then at the end of the year, I get a call from Bruno Michel, who is setting up GP2. They wanted a press officer and they said, we saw what you were doing in the camper van. We think it's really, really cool. It's very rock and roll. It's what GP2 is going to be all about. Do you want to be our press officer? And I was hanging out loads in the Formula 3000 paddock back then and uh, getting to know the young drivers. And I'm like, I can turn this into something. This can be really cool. So I, I moved to Switzerland and became press officer for GP2, which is now Formula 2. I was their press officer, then director of communications within a year. You know what it's like in this industry. If you see a little crack in the door, you just slam your foot in it and stop the door from closing and pull yourself in to the next room. And and there I was, press officer, 24 years old of the you know the category beneath Formula 1, working with Nico Rosberg and Nelson Piquet Jr. and the next year with Lewis Hamilton. And that's really where where everything started to kind of sort of steamroll. To what extent do you think luck played a part or was this like just absolute determination? Don't want to be one of those people that goes, you make your own luck, you know, but there's an element of that. I went on that year in the camper van thinking I've got to give it one last shot. And then I was determined to have fun doing it. And if I hadn't have said, I've got to give it one last go, then this opportunity never would have arisen. It definitely wasn't judgment. There wasn't a plan. I didn't look at Formula One and, and, and plot it and think, right, how am I going to get there and establish it as something permanent that I'll be in for 20, 30 years? Because I, I didn't know what the route was. I didn't, I didn't see a path. I just knew what I liked and knew what I wanted to do and thought if I put myself in it, maybe something will happen. Maybe right place, right time. Luck. Oh, yeah, luck absolutely played a part because I didn't know that GP2 was going to replace Formula 3000. I didn't know they were going to want a press officer. I didn't know that they would see what I was doing and like it. But if I hadn't have been there, then I wouldn't have been able to take take hold of that opportunity. So it's yes, it's luck. But if I hadn't have been there, then then I wouldn't have been able to take advantage of that luck. So there's an element that you make your own luck. But um, it wasn't planned. I just have it. And like you said, there weren't heaps of people. You know, nowadays, I mean, I I imagine you're the same. I get so many people ask me, 
how do I become a presenter in motorsport? And like you say, there weren't many people doing it when we were trying to get into it. So it's not like it was a clear career option. It was just there was an element of, well, if I just keep doing what I'm really enjoying and passionate about and keep showing up and keep knocking on doors, then whatever is evolving and and stuff is organically happening and I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. But now there are, well, you being someone that people want to be and they want to know how you got there. But it's times have changed so much because there are different routes in now, aren't there? There are. And there are much better opportunities to get your start because of the emergence of of social media and and well and the internet because you know when I was living in my camper van I had a, a thing that was the thickness and the the size of about five credit cards stuck together with an aerial on it that I had to shove into the side of my laptop which weighed as much as a hardback book you know big hardback book that would pick up some semblance of a single a signal so that I could send out this article which was 250 words long and it would take about an hour and a half to send. And, um, you know, there was no YouTube, there was no TikTok, there was no Instagram, there was no way to get yourself out there. It just, it didn't exist. You couldn't blog, you couldn't vlog. Those words didn't exist. It, it was a very, very different time. I've still got a pile of rejection letters from BBC Radio 5 Live for the job I went for at Autosport that I was turned down for, you know, F1 racing, you know, all the jobs that I didn't get, which I'd applied for by writing, writing, writing to everybody, you know, wrote to every team, wrote to every, but actually the way through was through the junior formulas that I, that I love. And my advice to people now, if they say, you know, if someone says, I want to work in Formula One, you're like, okay, well, what would you like to do? I don't know. I just want to work in Formula One. You know, I, I had a clear view of what I wanted to do. And I think it's very important that you have a clear view of what you want to do, that you you know what you enjoy, that you know where you want to to spend your time and 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 where you'd be best best placed. But for me, Formula One was always the end game. And so working towards that by working through the junior formulas was the best education that I could possibly have had. And I will always tell people if if you want if Formula One is your goal, it's very unlikely that you will start there. Start at your local club, start at your local kart track, you know, junior formula teams, whether it's from karting through, you know, into Formula 4, Formula Regional, wherever you can go, whatever experience you can get and build your way up gradually. Because if Formula 1 is the end game, then, then you know, all roads will eventually lead there or you'll find yourself somewhere and you'll get an opportunity. Who knows? It might be in IndyCar or in endurance racing or and then you'll find yourself in something that you never knew you'd love and you love it even more. And it's it's, it's wonderful when, you know, when this life takes you on a path that you you weren't expecting and you get to enjoy something that you never imagined you would. It's so much better almost than than getting the thing that you thought you wanted. But it's it's, you know, it's Formula One now is so popular. It's almost like people view that as a starting ramp, like. If I get into Formula One, I can use that and leverage that and move on to something else. And that kind of, that frustrates me because for me, this was always my end game. This, this was, this was it. And this still is it for me. I, I love it, you know, because it was, it was all I ever wanted to do. Having had that experience, that, that wealth of experience from, from the outset and now having done it for 20 years, I, I, I love it even more because, because of all that, that past and because of all the, the memories that, that kind of go along with it. And also because you dedicate so much time to it as well. But yeah, it's I think I'm not gonna say it's it's easier than it than it was 
to to get into it, but there are certainly more avenues and more routes in, and that's that's wonderful for people that have that dream and that want to be involved in it. That, that it, they have an outlet. There were a lot of, um, you know, when I put your your post out on social media, looking for questions for you, there were so many people asking how to how to become a journalist in the paddock, and I think it is important that while things have changed. You know, it's useful to hear what you say and also really important to hear that you had rejections because it's really easy to look at your career and not see the rest of the bits behind the scenes, the the no's, the, the endless hardships that came with it all. It's easy to overlook that side, isn't it? Yeah, but you need it because if everything comes too easily, you don't appreciate it. You know, when you lose your job and you've got nothing and you think this is it, it's, you know, this is never going to gonna realistically happen, then everything that happens after is a blessing and you enjoy every moment of it. I still think that somebody at some point is going to cotton on to the fact that I'm doing something I love and say, I'm terribly sorry, Will, but work isn't supposed to be like this. You have to go and do something proper now. Uh, I'm I'm convinced, you know, it's this you know, it's imposter syndrome thing. I don't think I deserve to be here, and I do think that someone's going to turn around and tell me, "Sorry, you've 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 been, we, we've got it all wrong." And for for twenty years, I'm terribly sorry. You have to go and do something else. The biggest piece of advice, though, I think I would have for anybody who wants to do anything like this is the one thing that I've always done for right for right or wrong is I I've never tried to be anything other than than me. And that'll either wind people up the wrong way or the right way. I've never, you know, acted up to anything or been anything other than me. And, you know, you go right back to the start when I annoyed far too many people because I was far too much like me, but I was just being me. But it's, I think it's really important if you want to be a broadcaster or you want to be a journalist to find your voice because everyone always asks, well, you know, what can I do differently? How can I stand out? The way that you stand out, the way that you're different is to be you. The one thing that you have that no one else has is your voice, your thoughts, your takes on things. If you go in and try to be what anyone else is doing or try to be like anyone else, you just become a a poor copy of them. And you do yourself a disservice because the great strength that we all have, the greatest strength that any of us has, we already have inside us. We have it in us when we're born and it develops and it grows every single day that we're here. And that's ourselves. If you can harness that, embrace that, learn to love that and bring that out, whether it's you know, writing on a page, whether it's standing in front of a camera, whether it's nothing at all to do with journalism or or broadcasting or anything, to bring yourself into everything that you do will make you stand out because you're giving something that no one else can, which is you. And that's everything. Do you absolutely love what you're doing now in Formula One? I mean, silly question. I know, even just from your face as well. Honestly, I, I, I do. I do. I do. I do. I, you couldn't spend that much time away from home. You couldn't travel that much. Have it take as much of it does out of your. I know. Woe is me. I have to travel to so many Formula One races. It's dreadful. Do you know? <laughs> I, I'm not complaining. Okay, but it's you know this will be this year. I, I'll do my 300th F1 race. I've done over 700 races now in in all competitions. It's a lot of time away from home, as you know. It's a lot of sacrifice. It's it's a lot of missed birthdays and and weddings and uh, and funerals and you know life moments for for our kids. You know you miss so much, but you 
you wouldn't still do it if you didn't get that same joy. And I've always sworn that the first day I walk into that paddock and I'm not utterly elated to be there is the day that I will stop doing it because then the magic's gone. And why should I be there pretending to be excited about something I'm not excited about when somebody with that same drive and passion and adoration of the thing that I love is waiting in the wings to do it and I'm and I'm standing in their way. I won't do it. I won't stand in the way of somebody who who has that once I've lost it. I hope I I hope I never lose it. And there's no sign of it happening yet. But um you've got to be realistic with yourself. Once you lose that, find something find something new. And how much have you enjoyed that step into the presenting side rather than just print journalism? I love it, but I miss writing. I, I loved writing. They always say, you know, television's where journalism goes to die. And now most of my stuff's online, so I don't know what that means. But um, it's, uh, I love it because I never thought I'd get to do this, but I do miss the writing part. I'm writing a book at the moment um, and I'm really enjoying getting back into, into writing again because I write very much as I talk because I want people to be able to read my voice when they read my words on a page. But again, the broadcasting thing was a massive mistake. I was back to being a journalist again after the GP2 days. And one day I got a call because FOM, Bernie Eccleston's lot in F1, suddenly realized they needed a commentator for GP2 Asia and they didn't have one. And Tony Dodgins, the journalist, uh, had suggested to them that they call me because I was the former GP2 press officer and knew loads about the series. So give him a go at commentary. So I picked up a microphone, gave it a go. They liked it. I then did the full year of GP2 commentary the next year. And then at the end of that year, I got a call from Speed Channel in the States who said, we heard your commentary and it's really great. Do you want to be our pit lane reporter? And so I just, again, yes, please. You know, And here comes this whole new part of a career that I had no idea was even there. I spent nearly a decade broadcasting to America and then F1 asked me to come over and, and help launch the you know, F1 TV. So it's all been a glorious mistake, but I love it. I've loved every second of it. Um, I I love just enthusing about about Formula One, enthusing about motorsport, getting to go and do cool things like Le Mans or, you know, whatever it might be and uh, and getting to talk about it. It's great. And also, you know, I don't have to sit in the media center until two o'clock in the morning, tapping away on my laptop anymore. You know, race is done, post show's done. Right out let's let's go but it's it's mentally taxing this weekend for example you know as i said i'm writing a book and i've just been in monaco and i thought oh you know i'll be able to write some over the weekend there wasn't a spare second where i had the mental capacity to do anything other than what i was doing to the extent that i didn't reply and i don't over a race weekend i rarely reply to emails my wife will will you know text me and say oh this bill needs paying and this bill needs paying they're not getting paid until Monday, because I do not have the spare capacity to deal with it. I'm doing six TV shows, six live shows a day, and I just can't think about anything else because the pressure of live television is so intense. It is such a buzz. It is such a joy, but it is it is utterly exhausting. And you will, and it it, it is a, a constant drug because you will never have a perfect broadcast. Something that you've said won't be perfect. You'll fluff your line with something. You'll there's always a mistake. There's always something that you know you could have done better. The, the day you do the perfect broadcast, hang your microphone up and walk away because you will never repeat it. And I don't know if the perfect broadcast exists. And again, that's the drug. That's what keeps you coming back. It's such a thrill, but it is all consuming and utterly exhausting whilst equally being utterly exhilarating. Yeah. And also because there's no off time in between, like it's not like in your position, you can be the be a a quiet downtime version of yourself in between 
no. live broadcasts either because there's always that element of being on show the moment you step out of your hotel room to the until the moment you step back into it at the end of the day. And you're also having to do the graft, which is going around, talking to everybody, figuring out what's really going on so that you then have the information to furnish the next show and the next two hours of broadcasting that you're going to go and do. You know, it's not just going and sitting down and hiding or grabbing some food. In fact, I mean, you know what it's like. If you if you miss breakfast, you're not getting anything till dinner. And only then if you make it back to the hotel in time. I've gone days without eating. Yeah, there's like silver lining for, for weight loss on those weekends, isn't it? <laughs> well, you just fuel yourself with sweets. Yeah, so it's so much time fueling with sugar. That's it. So it's terrible for weight loss. All I'm all I'm doing is drinking coffee, eating sweets, and uh, yeah, maybe that's why I'm so hyper all the time. I don't know. You touched on then about that that there's never a perfect broadcast, and you know when things slip up or, or you know those sorts of uh, errors that can happen. Do you get nervous and how do you cope when you finish a live broadcast and feel like you haven't done the the version that you would like it to have been? I I always feel sick before we go on cuz I really care. I really I really want it to go well. It's not the same as it was, but there's always butterflies, there's always anticipation and no small amount of anxiety before before I go live and it's quite funny my one of my one of my good friends uh, one of my cameraman rich says that he notices in me about 30 seconds before we go live my face changes and I kind of switch into on air will everything just turns and he says at that point he just goes oh yeah okay we're in we're in and he really loves it because he knows that's where when it gets serious I just re- I really care about but I care about everybody on the team as well. And I want everyone to have a good a good show. And, you know, when you're standing in front of that camera, your job is not just to say the words and the right words at the right time. You have so many jobs. The first one and the primary one is to sort of talk through the camera to whoever's at home and to make them feel that you are talking exclusively to them. The second, and, and as equal as important, is to be James Brown. And James Brown, he was a showman, right? And he was he was the ultimate kind of, you know, front man. But the entire band hung on his every word. And when he clicked his fingers, they went to the bridge, you know, because they they knew and they all had faith in him. And you have to give that confidence to your whole team from your sound ops to your cameramen to the floor managers to everybody that ultimately the guy or the girl holding this show together they're the band leader and they're going to hold it all together and and we're all one team together. So I th- and I think that that notion of teamwork is a really really important part of broadcasting and you know it if you can can create that sense of of team then everyone's invested everyone's in it and everyone's willing that show to be the best thing that it can be. So when you come off there and everyone knows they're giving 100%, you know, it's like high fives all around, everyone's having a great time and then even if it's gone wrong you you know one of the links has gone wrong or you know you threw to the wrong interview or you had a you know one of the cameras went down or whatever it doesn't matter right because then everyone consoles the person you know where where something went wrong it doesn't matter because you're a team if you don't have that that situation where everyone's helping to lift each other up then if something goes wrong then that person feels really really terrible because they feel it's their responsibility that something went wrong and it's not because we're a team it's really interesting the parallels of what you're saying and the world of a driver, for example, from the sacrifice that that are made, you know, with families and being away from home all the time to 
that element of getting in the zone and, and being able to channel nerves or anxieties beforehand and during and the element of recovery from setbacks or, or difficulties and teamwork. Liz, I, w- I wouldn't put myself at that. At that. I, think, I think it's the same with anybody that is in this kind of a team environment. You know, it's like it's a guy on the left front gun in the pit stop. It's, you know, it's, it's whatever role you find yourself in. You gotta. I think you just gotta always try to be a part of that of that team. If you're, I guess, yeah. If you're, if you're sort of the front and center, like the driver, or you know, like the host of a, a show. If if you're that person that the spotlight's ultimately on, then that responsibility, you know, does it does fall on you. And I, I love that. And um, it was it was Jason Swales who we know you know very well, the producer, who taught me everything I know about what that responsibility is to you know to lead the team and to make sure that everybody feels valued and everybody feels that their role is important and how you know how crucial it is to let them know that they're doing a good job and to also not make them feel bad or not let them feel bad if something's you know something's gone wrong because it's it's all about helping everybody to get you know rising tide lifting all ships and and all of that just just making sure because it because when you have that then what you're creating can be something something magical and you don't need to have you know, a crew of 30 people, it could be four or five of you. And if everyone is operating at, you know, 100% can be the most magical, can be the most magical thing. It's like you've got the polyphonic spree or whatever with, you know, a thousand members in the band, or you've got Supergrass with three members in the band. No, it's like, who makes the bigger noise? You um, have to interview drivers who will have come off track and have experienced a plethora of different things that may or may not have happened. To what extent do you, as Will, like chase the emotion from a driver or shy away or awareness of elements, depending on driver it is? Like there are so many things that come into play, I imagine, before you actually put the mic in front of that specific driver. And I wonder what plays out for you during that process as well. When I switched from print, to TV for the first few years, I asked very print journalisty questions to drivers, which very often can be met with a yes or no answer. And when I started work at NBC, they tutored me in asking better questions in order to draw emotion out of people. Much more open-ended questions, you know, rather than saying, "Oh, uh, look like your tires really went off in that second stint," and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, they did." You so you say, you know, oh, that second stint looked tough. What happened?" And then. Oh, my tyres went off. Okay, okay, same question, but you ask it a little bit differently. And it will do that to you as well. Like, there are quite a lot of drivers, won't there? If, if they have the option of just saying yes or no, they'll take that option. They absolutely will. But some of my best answers have come from, so drivers had a really disappointing race and they'll just come over in the in the pen and you just look at them and you go, don't know what to say. I, I just feel for you. You know, what a day. And they just look at you and go, yeah, hey. Honestly, everything that could go wrong did go wrong and X, Y, Z. So I think there's, you know, empathy is really important, trying to understand what they've gone through, what they've, what they've been through, the adrenaline that's still going to be coursing through their veins, the elation, the disappointment, everything that they may be feeling in, in that time. And you don't need to ask a long question. If they come over and they've just won their first race, you just look at them and you go, yes, you know, come on, finally, you know, this is, this is it. And they're like, Yes, you know, come on. You know, if you can be in that moment with them, that's I think that's more powerful than having a 
a planned, well, it was your 75th Grand Prix and finally the wait is over. How do you feel? You know? Yeah, I feel great. It's been brilliant. But if they walk over and you're just like, come on, like, you know, they're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't know. Everyone's got their own way of doing it. But for me, it's always, you know, and, and you've got to listen as well. You know, you, I've never, I've never been one to, to write down a huge list of questions, even with a long sit down interview. I'll have, you know, topics or, or headlines that, that I know I kind of want to hit at certain points. But the best thing I think you can do in an interview is just listen, have your first question. And from that point on, just let it go where it goes, you know, and you'll often find it going down paths you never imagined it would if you just let it flow. And if you don't treat it like an interview, you just treat it as a conversation, you know, because you don't sit down with a mate with a list of questions. You sit down with a mate and you just, you know, you shoot the breeze, you have a chat and you you find out about each other and what's going on in each other's lives. Same is true, I think, with interviewing. The more you can just sit there and talk, the better responses, the more insight, and the more you're going to get a real version of who that person is than the media face that's very much on with answering the questions that they know they're going to get asked. Are there any like key moments, I guess, in, in that, those sorts of things that you've just shared or an actual race weekend that you feel has been a, a big point or a highlight or a changing point for you? I had a great interview with Kimi Raikkonen once, which which weirdly enough was actually questions that we'd had sent in. We just laughed the whole way through it. And he was so fun. And, you know, Kimi, who normally didn't say anything, was just brilliant and was just so open and, and hilarious. I remember having a really lovely interview with Charles Leclerc when he was with Alfa Romeo and we were in Monaco. And you know, I, I've always made a point of trying to spend time down in the in the F2 and F3 paddocks and getting to know the guys when they're young before they get to F1 because I think that's that's pretty important. And Charles was one of those guys I'd got to know a little bit and he'd lost his dad the year before. Well, actually, we lost our dads about the same time. We were in Monaco the next year. He's an F1 driver and he's talking about how he promised his dad literally the day before he died. He, he told him that he'd signed to race in Formula One and he hadn't. It was a lie. But he just wanted to make his dad feel feel okay before he went. And he told me that while, while we were doing the interview. And I it sort of clicked. And then I asked him the next question. And as he was answering the next question, I just burst into tears. He reaches across and he's talking about, you know, this amazingly emotional time in his life. And it's made me burst into tears. And he's consulting me, which was like crazy, but lovely. There's I mean, there's there's a million sort of kind of lovely memories of of you know, when those those kind of interviews have just have just happened and have just been really, really great. And I think that ties into what you were saying about bringing, bringing in that, that human element of yourself and actually listening to somebody because you could easily have missed that moment mm. if you were just focused on what your list of questions were, for example. Yeah, cause you're, and also because your head's down, your head's down then in your, in your notes. It's not looking at them and interacting with them. It's all about interaction. It's all about humanity you know and and i think the most important thing that that we can do in our job is to show the world these amazing sports people and what and what they do and you know they're my heroes i i look up to them and what they do because it's this thing that i've admired my whole life and could never do and i want folks at home to get to know these people and to look at them the way that I do. I hope that by, you know, by interviewing them or by telling their stories that, you know, that, that they'll fall in love with them, 
you know, in 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 that way, and and look up to them in that in that way. Ultimately, it's just it's just telling stories, you know. And that's that's all I've ever tried to do from from the earliest age, whether I was writing or you know through through TV. It's just it's just telling stories. You touched on your pops passing just then, um, and I wondered how you managed to keep going in this in the F1 world where there's a little where there's little space for things like bereavement timeouts isn't really an option how did you juggle that if you're happy to answer I don't really remember it was a bit of a blur you know how those how those times are uh, I took a few months off um uh, actually no it wasn't it was just a couple of weeks my first race back was Japan and I was doing we were doing some features and I went to the Honda factory at Suzuka and we were picking up an NSX and uh, Fernando was going to get in the car with me and we were going to drive to the track. And he got into the car and, you know, he'd been told, oh, you're getting in with a journalist, clearly, and, you know, drive him to the track. He got in and he went to get the belt and to buckle himself in. And as he did so, he looked across and he saw me and he let go of the belt and he reached over and he put his hand on my on my lap and he said, um, I know why you haven't been here the last few weeks and I just want to say I'm really, really sorry and it hasn't been the same without you. And I looked over at him and again, I just went and I was like, Oh, that it was just my heart just exploded. I was like, "That's so me." And that's side of Fernando that people don't they don't see that that's that side of him, or or actually how close you you get with people in this bizarre circus that that we work in. It is it's a big traveling family. So when I did come back after a couple of weeks away, people were just lovely, and and it was a and I you sort of felt like. You'd le- I'd left. I'd had to leave behind my family, family to go back and travel again, but I was back with my weird, mad traveling motor racing family who were all there for me as well. So it was yeah. You don't spend twenty years with the same bunch of people without without growing some form of attachment to them. How do you cope with the ever increasing calendar? Uh, by taking more and more races off. Very wise. <laughs> yeah, look, I signed up for 16, right? So it can go to 30. I'm still not going over 18. No, I have done I have done the full seasons. I have done the, you know, the full the full whack, but I'm 42 now. You know, my daughter's asked for me to do fewer races and um got a new baby on the way as well. So, you know, there's there's a lot of of reason to to spend more time at home. I look back over, you know, the last sort of 10, 15 years and think I should have spent more time at, at home. I didn't need to do every every race. But it's a it's an odd game, this, where when you're young, you presume that if you don't do everything that you can, they're going to find someone else because you, you don't think you belong or you don't think that you're good enough. And this is probably true for everything in life. There came a point with me where... I was so I was so worried about it. I was always thought if I take the races off, they, you know, they're going to find someone cheaper. They'll find someone younger. They'll find they'll find someone if I take one race off. So I never I never took a race off. I just did everything. And then I finally a couple of years ago just hit this point where I thought honestly, if they if they want to find somebody else, then then go for it because they don't appreciate me and what I do. So I said, do you mind if I take a couple of races off? And they were like, no, honestly, we're surprised you haven't asked before. And that was revelation to me, you know. Um, and now with the calendar being as big as it is, F1 have actually been very good in that they want us to take races off. They don't want us to do all of them because they're very wary that the calendar is so long that if we were to do every race, we'd be burnt out and then our output wouldn't be as good as it could be. So they would rather we took the races off and remain fresh 
than we burned ourselves out and ended up being no good. And, you know, they want us to spend time with our families and they want us to not leave the sport. They want us to stay in it. So they're very, I'm very, very lucky to work for F1 because they, they really are very good at understanding this. Yeah, I'm very appreciative, very, very appreciative for that. But it's, I think it's the thing with life, isn't it? You know, we, we spend so much of our younger years freaking out, doing the overtime, doing everything because we're, we're so scared that we're going to lose it and that, and that they're going to find someone else. And um, so a great quote the other day that said, uh, the only people who remember the extra hours you worked will be your kids. The pangs of regret that, you know, that I have now. No, I'm not, I'm not going to get that back. We have a heap of questions from social media and I do want to try and get to some of them. I am aware that there are a million questions I could ask you about Formula One itself, but I do want to get through some of these social media questions. Cool. So Caswell H says, which Formula One driver do you most enjoy interviewing and why? Oh, that's a tricky one. I think Damon Hill is a fascinating interview because he's spent a lot of time delving into himself and gaining a true understanding of who he is, the life that he's gone through, his experiences both before, during and after his Formula One career, has a very good appreciation of the kind of messed up existence that racing drivers have and is one of the best suited to to actually discuss that having gone through a, a lot of a sort of counseling and uh, and therapy and understanding afterwards because of, of how difficult he found it when his when his career ended he was my childhood hero and it's kind of mad that somebody whose poster i had on my wall i now consider a, a mate but he's uh, a wonderful man an uh, incredible human being i think has a way with words which few drivers that i've ever met do uh, so damon is a is I, th- I think is is a fascinating fascinating person to talk to. Lehman 8 wants to know when Paddock Pass will be back. Never. <laughs> uh, no, that, yeah, we ran that for quite a few years. That actually started on NBC. Oh. Uh, we carried it over to F1 with us. But there's so many shows now with the pre-show, post-show and everything else. So it was, sadly, it was one of those one of those little ones that just kind of slipped away. Vpand53, what do you think about the impressions done of you in Drive to Survive? I will tell you a funny story about this. Um, so Connor Moore, who does the impressions and is very good. Uh, I met him in Austin last year and we had a photo together and he's, he's a lovely lad. I actually saw him this week in Monaco and I told him this story and he lost it. I was in Australia at the Grand Prix and I'm walking down the paddock and someone went, oh, it's you. And I went, hey, how's it going? They went, oh, love what you do, mate. Love it. You know, it's so great. I was like, oh, thanks. You know, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. And he goes, can you do Carlos? And I went, uh, no, no, sorry. You know, sorry, sorry. And he goes, I'll oh, go and do Will Buxton. And I went, <laughs> I said, I said, really, mate, I've got to go and do some work. And he just went, that's brilliant. That's great. You're doing so well. I was like, thanks very much. And I, and I was like, yeah, I thought I was Connor Moore. Uh, so that shows you how good Connor Moore's impressions are, that uh, they, they thought I was Connor. It was great. It was very, very funny. The Candy Cane, favourite F1 team? Oh, you see, I'm not allowed to have favourites. Well, no. I, I could have favourites, but I shouldn't have favourites. No, I, I, they're all, listen, you know, we're all fighting for the same thing. And I, I 
love them all for the you know the the massive gargantuan effort they put in. It's 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 something incredible just to see the teams operating at the level that they do is it's wild. It's it's absolutely amazing. You know, I grew up supporting Ayrton Senna, but Williams was my team when I was a kid. I think it was for a lot of for a lot of kids in the, in the UK. And I think no matter which team you support, Williams is kind of like a lot of people's second team. But uh, Jordan, Jordan as well, growing up, they were they were they were great. And finally, Sports Mania OK, the favourite race and what do you enjoy most about it? Favourite uh, round, I guess, actually. I get asked this question so much and it's almost an impossible one to answer because what am I going for? City, circuit, the country itself, the food, you know, every experience is so unique. And that's what I love about the World Championship is is getting to experience different cultures and different places and meet different people. It's wonderful. Um, I love Budapest. Uh, for all of those reasons. Great little track in a bowl. You can see everything from everywhere. It's always beautifully sunny, amazing culture in the city. Love, love Budapest. Uh, I love Japan, you know, same reasons. Singapore, the cars never look more incredible than they do under those lights at night. Um, Monaco, anytime you're feeling ground down and annoyed about whatever it might be. You just go and stand trackside in Monaco for 30 seconds and get reminded of why you fell in love with this sport in the first place. There are so many, so, so many great races um, and great venues and great locations. We're just, we're exceptionally lucky to to get to visit them. You said earlier that you are at the place where you want to be and stay for good. Do you think that's the case? Do you still see yourself in F1 in, in 10, 20 years time? Or will there be a, a sidestep? I know you've got another book coming out and that your first one's done really well. Can you see yourself doing more of that? I don't know what the future holds. And if my my career to this point has taught me anything, it's it's to not, you know, <laughs> not try and plan for what's next. Uh, I don't know what's next. Uh, I have loved every single step of this, and the last ten years of being able to present on television has, has given me given me an opportunity that I I never thought I'd, I'd have. I love presenting, and I really enjoy being able to share great stories with people. At the moment, that's about Formula One. If it was to ever change and to be about something else, then I would relish that challenge, and uh, it's something that I. I think I'd really love to do whether that opportunity will ever present itself. I don't know. But uh, at the moment, I'm absolutely loving this because this is so much more than I ever hoped for uh, from my career or, or from my life. I get to get to hang out with my heroes and get to travel the world and watch Formula One. You know, if you told 13 year old Will, you're going to be broadcasting and telling the world about Formula One and helping them, helping them love this thing that you love. Either thought you were mad. He just thought you were absolutely mad because to do this was beyond my wildest dreams. There are like 10 million more questions, so you'll just have to come on and uh, come and join us for another episode. Thank you for your time, Will. It's been a real privilege. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. At any time. I'll come back anytime. Thanks for listening to this episode of Get Closer by the Geneva International Motor Show a podcast where influential personalities from the automotive landscape share their passion. If you like this episode, please consider leaving a review and make sure to subscribe to this series on your favorite podcast platform.